And so uh, with that being said, I want to invite you to take your Bibles with me and uh, turn to the fifth chapter of the epistle to the Galatians, uh, Galatians chapter 5. And we're going to be looking um, towards the latter half of the chapter, starting in verse uh, 16. And uh, so I want you, if you're able, uh, please stand with me for the reading of the Word of God. Galatians 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. If you join me in a word of prayer. Father God, Father, we come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love. We, we thank you and are so humbled that in your, according to your wise and, and, and the holy counsel of your will, in eternity past, you've, you've, you've looked upon a people. You've looked upon a people that was sinful, that was hostile to you, that hated you, that, that hated your law, dear God, and, and you looked at this people. And all of the persons of the Holy Trinity in complete unison have looked at this people who, who was sinful, who left to their own desires would only bring about their own destruction. And yet, dear God, in, in, your, in the counsel of your will, you've looked at this people and the desire that you have had has been to redeem this people, to save this people, to, to elect this people into salvation, to send your... Son, Christ, to die on the cross for them, to send your Holy Spirit at the opportune time to regenerate this particular people, dear God. Not because this people was more righteous than anyone else, not for anything within the creature, but all according to your own sovereign, free will to save. And God, we are so humbled by this, and we are so thankful for this, dear God. And every day that we live our Christian lives, we are dependent. We are utterly and totally dependent upon your grace to keep us and to sustain us, dear God. I just pray that that your word and that your name would be hallowed and honored and, and glorified as we worship tonight by means of the preaching of your word, dear God. I just pray that my listeners would would have ears to hear, dear God. I pray that their hearts would be open to receive divine and spiritual things. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. It has been well said that every true Christian is marked with a battle. That every true Christian is marked with warfare. Now, this is not a physical or external battle for uh, the pagans know about these as well. The battle that I speak of is not only known by all Christians, but it is only known by Christians. And that is simply because of the kind and nature of this battle. And that is that this is a spiritual battle. 
Now, the reason that I say only Christians know of this spiritual battle, this this spiritual warfare that I speak of is because of the plain and obvious theological truth that only Christians in this new covenant age that we live in are indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. The pagans, the atheists, people of false religions, people who call themselves Christians but inside are truly not all people whom we would classify as non-believers, those who are unregenerate, they have not been begotten unto new life by the Holy Spirit, people who are, for lack of better words, still in their sins, these such people are not indwelt with the Spirit and therefore they do not know of this spiritual battle that I speak of. And that battle is this, and that is the ever-present war between the Spirit and and the flesh, the battle between flesh and spirit. Now, every Christian knows something of this battle. And I dare say that if you do not know of of this battle, if you have not experienced it, then I would call you to examine yourself to see whether or not you are truly in the faith. The Bible teaches plainly that all believers have the Spirit of Christ in them. And I don't think anyone is going to... Uh, debate or disagree with me that all people quite obviously have the flesh, uh, Christian or not. Well, the biblical teaching on the matter is this, as we will examine today, that the spirit and the flesh are opposed to one another. Now, that being the case immediately creates conflict. It immediately creates conflict because what's going on is that Every true Christian has, to put it in a certain sense, has two forces in them. That is the flesh and that is the spirit. Now, because of the fact that these two forces are opposed to one another and the fact that Christians have both of them, it logically and necessarily follows that there is warfare inside the body and inside the the mind and inside the soul of Christian. So again, I say, if you do not know anything of this warfare, if it just sounds completely foreign, if you've never spent sleepless nights in tears over your brokenness and over your sin, if if you've never had this hungering and, and thirsting for righteousness, I would suggest that perhaps it is that you only have the flesh and you do not have the spirit. Because if you had them both, There'd be war. There would be war. And if you do not have the Spirit, it's my duty as a minister of Jesus Christ that you are not to tell you that unless you have the Spirit of Christ within you, you're not a Christian. You're not saved. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Fear not and despair. You've got to listen to this promise of Scripture, that although all men and women are born enslaved to their sin, enslaved to their flesh, the Bible promises, whosoever should call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus Christ died for sinners, and his death is absolutely sufficient for all people who come to believe in him. Well, the thing is this. The thing is this, that if you believe in that promise, like an actual belief in it, the Bible teaches that faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit, which means that if, you've, if you have faith, you've been both regenerated and indwelt with the Spirit. And as already observed, you already got the flesh. Uh, you had that from the moment you were conceived. And so now, being a Christian, the same flesh that you've carried with you your whole life, you still have, now you've got the Spirit within you. Now you got the Spirit within you, and these two things are opposed to one another. It's a necessary implication of that. It's that you're at war. You're at war. That you are at war, that there has begun the moment you are converted unto Christ and enter a spiritual conflict and battle of the soul uh, between the Holy Spirit of God who is in you and the members of your flesh. Now we all recognize the battle. We know that it's there. So what we need to recognize next is that we need to fight this battle. 
that we've been enlisted in, in, in a spiritual warfare. Well, we've got to engage in that. We have to think about it. We have to deal with it. For the Christian life is not a, a passive thing. It's not a, a complacent thing. It's not that you separate it into different categories. You say, well, this is the time when I you know, focus on my religion and things like that, and then for the rest of the time I'm going to focus on my life. No, there's... Things have changed for you. Things have changed. I'm sorry if I'm the first minister to tell you this, but the Christian life is different than the non-Christian life. I, I know that men want to stand here in pulpits and, and just try and just change the message, and they want to try and change the church and, and change things to make it as, as appealing and, and suiting to you as possible. I'm, I'm sorry, I won't do that. Because I'm not going to stand before you on Judgment Day. Uh, on Judgment Day, I, God's not going to say, Logan, how come you only were able to attract X amount of people in, into the pews when the other minister down the street, his church was packed out? That's not what he's going to ask me. You know, the Apostle Paul was able to have a clean conscience. He, he was able to say that I am innocent of all blood. I, I'm good. That he, he said at the end of his life, I've, I've fought the fight of faith. I've, I've run my race well. Timothy, it, it's your turn. I, I've, I've done my part. Why? Why was this man able to, to look at death and not fear it and, 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 and go right out with ease? Well, the thing that he knew was that when he went to the different churches or he went to the different cities to evangelize, that he did not neglect to deliver them the whole counsel of God. You say, that doesn't apply to me. I'm not a minister. Well, if you're a Christian, you need the whole counsel of God. You need the whole counsel of God. You need it. We, as Reformed people, uh, we confess sola scriptura. That is, Scripture alone is our, our final authority. You also got to remember this other principle of the Reformation, tota scriptura. What does that mean? All of Scripture. All of it. So, the Christian life is something that you are actively, presently involved with and engaged in. Okay? It's, you're called to have a living faith. A living faith. You think about it. You think about how it is that you're doing with this respect of your life. It's not enough to be merely a hearer of the word. We're called to be doers as well. So we recognize that there is a battle, and if there is a battle, and if I have been called into this battle, I need to fight this battle. So you ask the question, well, how? How do I fight this battle? You see, if you're a Christian, you want to fight. You want to fight this battle. You, you don't want the flesh to win. You don't want it to. You want the spirit to triumph over the flesh doesn't automatically mean that you know how to fight, okay? It doesn't, it doesn't mean you know how to accomplish this. But as I so often need to remind myself and as other Christians need to be reminded as well, let us comfort ourselves with one truth that we all hold so dearly. That is the love of God. It's the love of God. That is the fact and reality that God loves his children. He, he loves us, and, and he, really, he, he, like he really does. So I, I know when we just hear these things so much that it's, it's like a given, like it's just taken for granted. It's, when I say certain things in the context of a church, for those of you who have been uh, walking with the Lord for a long time, you, I mean, how many times have you been sitting in those very pews and someone with a Bible was standing here telling you that God loves you. I mean, you've just heard that so much, but, but like, it's, it's actually true. Like, like, that's a real thing that's going on right now, if you're a Christian, is that the creator uh, and sustainer of the universe loves you. Loves you. Because he has given you the righteousness of his son. And that's a wonderful thing. 
And so, and so we need to remind ourselves of the fact and reality that God really loves us, that there is a real and actual love on the part of God for his elect people. And, and, and this is a wonderful thing. And as a matter of fact, it should cause us all the more to desire to fight this battle that we've been called to. You know, because of the fact that God loves us, he so lovingly decided to, to give us an aid, to give us help and, and instruction in this war. Well, what is it? Beloved, I'm referring to his word. I, I'm referring to the scriptures. You must always remember that the fountain of all truth and wisdom and instruction is the very word of God provided and so because God loves us and he knows that we're in this battle, he has in his word provided teaching and instruction for how we are to fight. So if you take away anything from what I say tonight, as you go about your week and you think, you know, you know that you're in this battle, you know there's this conflict between the spirit and the flesh, what's the first thing you should run to? It's the word. It's the word. So it's my privilege as a preacher, as a minister of the gospel of Christ Jesus, to be afforded an opportunity to now assist you, my fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord, in this battle. So with that all being said, let us examine this passage which lies before us. So chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, by the phrase, but I say, which we find at the beginning of verse 16, we should immediately notice that what Paul is saying here has something of a contrast, something of relation to uh, what's come before. He's responding to an argument or a conversation that's already been brought up in the text. So without being exhaustive, we need to know something of the context this passage, for we can adequately interpret these verses. So in verses 1 through 15 in chapter 5, Paul was essentially talking about the freedom that believers have in Christ. We have been set free from the bondage of sin. We are no longer under the law, but we are under grace. And therefore, the Christian man is a free man for Christ to set him free. By way of historical background, in the church at Galatia, there had snuck in some people whom we refer to as Judaizers. Well, who were the Judaizers? They were uh, men who essentially, or teachers who were essentially trying to add works into the gospel of grace. They were teaching the necessity of circumcision. The argument was essentially this. You know, for a Christian to be admitted into the new covenant, do they need to pass through the old covenant first? And... The, the, obviously, we recognize circumcision being affiliated with the Old Covenant. So some of these men were coming in, well, before you can be a Christian, because remember, a circumcision uh, being a covenant principle is, is primarily uh, localized within the Jewish community. Well, as the gospel is, is being spread, remember Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, not just Israel, but he is the king of kings, that uh, the message of his gospel and of his grace is going to spread from, from this location to the ends of the earth. So the gospel message is going out to these Gentile nations who, well, these men weren't circumcised. Wasn't, it wasn't part of anything they grew up with. And so there were certain people who were saying, well, before you can latch on to Christianity, you need to go through this. Paul strongly and boldly objects to this he, as it destroys the freedom that we have in Christ. It destroys the very meaning of grace to say that there's something you need to do to earn it, okay? Uh, by the way, as Calvin said, every shepherd should have two voices, one for tending the sheep, another for driving away wolves. I've got to say things that are not necessarily liked by everyone. I, I, so I should also have to add this, that what Paul says, Galatians chapter 1, that anyone who preaches a gospel contrary to the one he has preached should be anathema. Again, I say anathema, accursed. That is, people who add works into the gospel. Paul says, rid of them. 
You're not, you're, not, you're, not, you're not a Christian. It's not what Christians do. Christians don't add works into the gospel. And unfortunately, that principle of Scripture has not been followed throughout uh, the past 2,000 years. We have the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church who say that they're, they're the true church. They say, you know, my church has existed for 2,000 years. Well, your church falls under the anathema of Galatians chapter 1 because you're adding works into the gospel. Paul says, let such teachers be accursed. But Paul, in his wisdom, he recognizes, he realized that having spoken and articulated such a beautiful and important truth, he recognizes that this truth is so incredible, it is so wonderful, it is so amazing that it is just the type of thing that the carnal mind will use and abuse unto his own destruction. So in verse 13 he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. You were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, the objection that I've heard so many times, and you will hear this as well if you have not, when I am uh, presenting the gospel of grace, whether it's to uh, my friends who are parts of these churches I've mentioned before, or with people who are just your run-of-the-mill secular non-believer, people of a more atheistic uh, strand, the objection that you always hear is, well, if you're saved by grace, and it's by faith, and it's not anything you do, and, and you know, God is, it's a monergistic thing, that is, only one party is accomplishing this task, and it's all of God, and it's, and it's none of you. If that's the case, if it's grace by faith, not of works, why don't I just keep on sinning? Why, why even worry about it? Well, what you need to remember is that the type of person who thinks that that is an actual objection is a person who has not been regenerate. This is a person who can't see past the flesh. When they hear this truth that Paul articulates, the first thing that runs their mind is how can this be used and abused to still continue to satisfy my lusts and still continue to please myself. Paul says this, he says, listen, the freedom you have in Christ, it's not not freedom to sin, it is freedom from sin. And so that's when he starts warning against sin and, and division in the church, saying, you know, you guys, you know, not to bite, not to devour one another, And that's when we get to verse 16 where he says, But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, if you truly have been set free from the bondage of sin and the penalties and the judgment of the law, if you've been saved from that, if you've been redeemed from that, reconciled unto God from that, then don't go on continuing in the very sin that you claim to have been set free from. Rather, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, there are two things we need to notice here. First, that spirit, the word spirit in this verse, has been capitalized by our English translators. doesn't matter if you're using the ESV, which is what I preach from, or you got uh, King James, NASB, NIV, whatever it is. All of your mainstream English translations are going to capitalize that word spirit there. Why? Well, that's because Paul is referring to the person of the Holy Spirit, who's God. It's very important we recognize that. You will not understand this passage if you don't recognize that. And uh, for one reason, to deny the personality of the Holy Spirit would be blasphemy. But secondly... We need to realize that Paul is not telling us to walk in some sort of cloud or dazed and confused state. He's not telling us to walk in some ethereal energy or some impersonal force or emotional feeling or just some kind of vain superstition. It's not 
It's not what he's saying. He's telling us to walk in the Holy Spirit of God, who is a personal being. Why is this relevant? Well, an impersonal force or an emotional feeling, the, the dazed and confused state, right? It doesn't have the capacity to lead you, to, to guide you, to instruct you, to give you wisdom, to give you instruction, conviction, and even comfort, and, and so on and so forth. This, this, you can't have a relationship with just this impersonal force. And I think a lot of the times when ministers tell um, uh, their, their, their people, their sheep to, you know, we need to walk in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, many people think that that just means just walk just blindly. Like, what, is, what does it even mean to walk in the, in the Spirit? What are you talking about? No, we're talking about the Holy Spirit. We're talking about a personal being, we're talking about the third person of the Trinity who can give you direction, who can give you guidance and, and, and wisdom and that kind of thing. So Paul's telling us here is, since, remember Paul's theology, he says that anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ within them is not a Christian. So Paul is saying that Holy Spirit that is indwelling you, listen to him. Listen to him. Follow him. Listen to the wisdom he gives you. Listen to the, the conviction that he brings upon you when, when you sin and, and he just sort of stabs you and, and he brings that sin of yours to mind and, and, and he causes you to weep. That's, that's what he's saying there. He's saying listen to the Holy Spirit. Walk by him. Follow after him. And so the other observation that, that I want you to make is what we find at the latter half of verse 16 here, that if you walk in the Spirit, Paul says you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What we need to recognize is that when Paul says this, he is not giving us a command. He's not giving us an imperative at the last section of the verse, but rather he's, he's making a promise. He, he is making a promise. He's promising something. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us that if we walk in said Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of our flesh. Sometimes when I look at verses like this, I, this, is, this is what I imagine. When I was, I don't remember, middle school, high school, somewhere around there, I had to take some kind of computer class where we had a code. You had to like, code software. And when you're, when you're coding, and I'm oversimplifying this, Stanley, obviously, but you have what can be called basically an like an if-then statement. So you plug in the if, and whenever this condition is met, this thing necessarily follows. Well, it's sort of like you can imagine that same kind of thing here with, with this passage of Scripture. If this condition is met, if you're walking in the Spirit, the logical, necessarily thing that's going to follow, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires in the flesh. Plug this thing in, this will happen. Put your foot on the gas paddle, you're going to accelerate. That's, that's what Paul's saying here. And so, that is good news. Like, like that, is, that is good news to the Christians. Is that not a, a wonderful thing? For if you're a Christian, as has been noted earlier, then you have a desire not to gratify the desires of your flesh. And so if that's your goal, if that's what you want to do, if you desire and crave to abstain from the passions of your flesh that wage war against your soul, if that's your ambition, then take comfort and find joy in this wonderful promise of Scripture that if you are walking in the Spirit, you won't. You won't fulfill the passions of your lusts. You won't fulfill the passions of your flesh if you're walking in the Spirit. It's a, it's a promise that Paul makes under apostolic authority. Now, you need to balance this. You need to add a, a caveat or a qualifier there. Even the godliest, truest, most sincere, and spirit-led, grace-empowered Christians still sin. Still going to sin. For no matter how much progress you make, still going to have the flesh. It, it always... 
It'll always be there. Now, the Bible teaches, of course, obviously, and I confess this proudly and with great boldness, that all of the elect will persevere. That is, the good shepherd will not lose one of his sheep. None of his are going to follow, fall away. That, that is obviously true. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. And, but nevertheless, even with that, it doesn't mean that although you're going to win the war in the end, that you're going to win every battle and every skirmish along the way. So Paul is not talking about some kind of doctrine of sinless perfection or absolute holiness. I, w- I, would, I would reject such a thing. But what I am saying is this. If you're walking in the Spirit, you are going to win more and more these battles, those, those skirmishes. Paul says, you know, plug this thing in, this will come out. If you walk in the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires, the flesh. Now in verse 17, Paul will explain things a little more in depth. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, verse 17 speaks of a point that I've already made, and that is the reality that every Christian has two opposing forces within them, the flesh and the spirit. These two are at war with one another. You see, according to Scripture here, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. And so that's, that's what we've got to recognize, because that's where the battle is. All right, now, once again, this is a point I've already made, but I must reiterate it for it's of utmost importance. This is a battle that is unique to the Christian life in two senses. One, this is something that only Christians experience, but secondly, it's also something that all Christians experience. The opposition that Paul speaks of here in verse 17 comes from the fact that it is the desires of the flesh that are against the desires of the Spirit and vice versa. Now, no one's going to argue with me that all human beings have the flesh, but it is only Christians that have the Spirit. It is only the, so that, therefore, only the Christian has both flesh and spirit, therefore, only the Christian has this opposition, has this warfare, has this tension inside of himself. For Paul says here that that which stands opposed to the desires of the flesh is the Spirit himself. So if a man or a woman only has the flesh, then that means that they only have one inclination, only one desire, that is to please the flesh. In other words, they are enslaved to their flesh, and if they're enslaved to their flesh, it means they're enslaved to their sin. As Paul elsewhere describes the sinner dead in trespasses and sin. Oh, What a sad and and, and miserable state this is to only be able to act according to the flesh. Now, how tragic are these people who, though they may be happy, they may be healthy, they may be wealthy, for they spent the whole of their lives pleasing themselves, and and some of them are really good at it, and they did please themselves, and they they got the, the money, they got the job, they got the whatever it was that their flesh craved, they got it, they were successful, and they felt pretty good about it too and they, and they were they were proud of it but those people who are only in the flesh and are enslaved to their stomachs and their carnal lusts and desires their end is and only is destruction and despair for they being enslaved to the passions of their flesh never desire to repent never desire to submit to God's will, to turn from their wretchedness towards righteousness and believe in the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who makes us righteous by our faith. Never having had their debt with God settled on the cross, God demands that these poor, wicked sinners pay that debt themselves. And what is this debt? Well, Scripture says the wages of sin is death. God will require of these individuals their souls their lives. You must understand this as well. If the sinner who is in the flesh and does not have the spirit is enslaved to their sin, it means that 
they don't even desire to desire to have the Spirit. They don't even desire to desire to abstain from the passions of the flesh. That is just how engrossed and in love with their wretchedness that the sinners are. But you say, well, I do have this desire. I do have this desire to abstain from my sin and abstain from the passions of my flesh. I say rejoice. For if you truly desire to turn away from your sin, the Bible teaches that that desire in and of itself is the gift of God and is an evidence of grace working on your life. For such desires arise not from the flesh, as is said here in verse 17, therefore that desire is most assuredly a gift of God. And I, as a minister of Christ Jesus, now call you poor sinner. If you truly want to defeat the sin that is in your life, You must come to Jesus Christ and bow the knee to Him, and He will save you. So, we've got to do two things with that. One, if you're already a Christian, let that give you confidence about an assurance of your salvation. For only truly regenerate people desire to follow the Spirit and abstain from the passions of the flesh. Therefore, if you truly have this desire, then you truly are a Christian. Let let that give you hope. There's not a whole lot of talk about, and and I guess if you listen to John and I, then you do hear this a lot, but evangelicalism as a whole, there's not a whole lot of talk about assurance of salvation. And why is that? It's because I think that the vast majority of people in ministry don't think that their congregations are concerned about whether or not they truly have salvation. And that is just sad. That is just sad. I mean, we want to, we think, okay, what's going to make our people happy? Live your best life now, you know, balance your checkbook and, and do all these different things. Have a successful marriage. Let your business be successful. All these different things that we think people will make happy. But we don't think that telling people how to have an assurance of their salvation, an assurance that I am a child of God, an assurance that I am saved, and like we just don't think that that's attractive to people. And that's, that's so sad. And, and if you are a Christian, then you, that is something you want. You, you, you ask yourselves a question. I mean, how do I, how do I know if I'm really saved? How do, how do I know? I mean, I mean, I said the prayer and I did this thing, but how, how do I know if it's real? Well, St. John, he wrote uh, five of our New Testament books. One was the Gospel of John. And he gives us a reason why I wrote it. He said, this is written that you may, that by believing in the Son of God, you may have eternal life. Then he also writes his epistle in First John, he said, and this is written so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that, that's a real biblical thing, having assurance of salvation, coming to faith and then knowing that you've come to faith. So... If you truly do have this, this desire to pursue righteousness and holiness, just rejoice in that. Jesus said these words, he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What's he doing? He's describing Christians. He's describing who, these, who the blessed people of the Beatitudes are. They are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He doesn't say, blessed are the righteous. He's not saying... Meet this standard, fulfill the law, circumcision in the context of Galatians. He's not saying, meet my standard right here and then you'll be blessed. He said, no. Do you hunger for righteousness? Do you thirst for righteousness? Then you're blessed. Then you're blessed. That's a wonderful thing. Well, secondly, if you're not a Christian, but you have been feeling or you are just today beginning to feel a a sense of your own unworthiness, a sense of your own sin, and though you've never quite felt like it before, but now all of a sudden you're desiring to be set free from your sin, you must listen to these words very closely and very carefully. That desire, that hunger and thirsting for righteousness that you have, that desire to abstain from your sin that you're feeling, that is given to you by God's grace. That is the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus said these words, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, 
Now, all anyone wants to do is argue about that passage. What's he saying there? He's saying that if you're going to come to me, if you're going to come to faith, it's going to be the drawing of God. He's going to bring you to me effectively, efficaciously. He will do the work for you. He will bring you to him. So you must heed that call. You must respond to that call and respond to it now. And I don't need you to walk an aisle. I don't need you to raise your hand. I don't need music. I don't need any external things like that. Because it's not up to me to do it. And it's not up to you either, by the way. It's up to the Spirit of God. So do business with Him now. And by the way, not only did Jesus say, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, but what's the last half of that verse? I will raise him up on the last day. What does it mean? That means the calling of God is irresistible. So even if you tried to fight it, you wouldn't be able to. Because He would win. He will bring you to him if that is what he wants to do. And so, if that's the case, this is where the battle emerges from. This is where the battle emerges from. Because for the Christian, they have these two things. They have the flesh that they are born with, and they have the Spirit of God that has been given to them of God's grace. And the moment someone becomes a Christian, they are at war. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing what you want to do. Now that statement at the end of verse 17 is the source of much confusion and disagreement and debate amongst the commentators. Uh, The proper way to take it is this. The flesh keeps you from doing what the spirit indwelling within you wants you to do. And the spirit indwelling within you keeps your flesh from doing what it wants to do. Say, so how does that work? Say that's a contradiction. That's a, that's a paradox. How does that make any sense at all? How can I at the same time have a desire to sin and a desire to do what is righteous? How can I, having these simultaneous inclinations at the same time, be kept from these things? The spirit keeping my flesh from doing what the flesh wants to do. The flesh keeping the spirit what he wants to do within me. How, how can that be? Well, you should not ex- have expected it to be easy because Jesus said, if, if you will follow him, you must take up your cross. You must deny yourself. And so, dear Christian, I reply, you are at war. You are at war. You're, you're, you're in the trenches, Okay? We need to stay faithful to the context of the text here because Paul has already said that if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So although there may be two opposing forces within you, in the end, one of them is going to win. One of them is going to win, and it will be the Holy Spirit. For though you still have the flesh, you also got this new nature. You've also been born again. You've been raised unto newness of life. You've been called from death to spiritual life. The old things have passed away. Behold, you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. So there is a real sense in Scripture that in Christ you are a new you. And it follows that your desires have already change and they will continue to be changed as you live out your life and so in verse 18 we read this but if you are led by the spirit you are not under the law i just want to say i think this is an absolutely fascinating verse there is an immediate meaning given the context but there's another meaning to it as well both are true and both are absolutely necessary. Well, so the, the immediate point, uh, the, like the surface level thing, the, the main point of what Paul's saying there, he's saying when he says you are not under the law, is in response to that last conversation we were just having. If you're a Christian, you have new desires towards righteousness. And, and though as you live your life, you will progressively be triumphing more and more over your flesh, Nevertheless, this is a reality we all have to, to, to 
grapple with, you will always have the flesh. And so you're never going to win perfectly. You're never going to triumph perfectly. I think it was St. Augustine who said something to the effect of the most righteous deed of the most righteous man still has got a pound of flesh in there. It may not be recognizable to you, but there, there's something, something in there. And, and so you're never going to perfectly uh, be obedient. You're still going to sin. Christian, Christian people, you will sin. You are still going to sin. Now, does that make it okay? No. The freedom we have in Christ is not freedom to sin. It is freedom from sin. But nevertheless... Uh, the truth will set you free, and whoever the Son of God sets free will be free indeed. So when Paul says, but if you are led by the Spirit, he's meaning if you're engaged in this battle, if you're, you're living the Christian life, if you're engaged in the warfare between flesh and spirit, if this is true of you, then you are not under the law. So what's he trying to say there? Well, he's trying to give his audience, his readers, encouragement. I should just like to point out that as you, the people of God, sit out there and, and you listen to a Christian preacher who's ministering to you the Word of God, remember, just think about this. God speaks through His Word. And so God, through His Word, is, is giving you encouragement through these things. So how is that encouragement? Well, as I've already said, You've, you, at the church in Galatia, you had people coming in who were teaching the necessity of circumcision for the Christians. So I already mentioned Paul's outrage by this. Like, that, that's a real reason to split churches, okay? Not over some of the things that we fight about. There are actually important things to fight about. Sometimes we get those confused. Sometimes I get those confused. But there are real, actual, meaningful things to separate over. And that is when people are adding works into the Gospels. Paul's outraged by this. So in his argumentation, in his responding to this throughout the epistle to the Galatians, Paul is constantly developing this theme of the law, referring to the Old Testament law. Now we need to make one thing clear because I feel like most Christians don't understand this. And the reason is because people like me, who are uh, gifted by the Spirit and are put in positions of leadership and are responsible for teaching you, have not done so adequately in this area. So what I really hope you understand, is, as I say these words, I need to make this thing clear. The law is not bad. Okay, the law is not bad. It's not immoral. It's not wrong. The law was given by God for a specific purpose, and it's a true and right thing. Matter of fact, the law is still relevant for Christians to this day, as it serves us as, as a guide, as a moral compass. Some people have this notion that the Old Testament on the left half of the book is just, you know, don't even go in there. That's where God is, is mean and nasty. Over here in the New Testament, Jesus is nice. I don't think you can understand the New Testament without reading the Old Testament, by the way. At any rate, but that's, that's not an actual, accurate paradigm that I just set up there. You know, the same God inspired Leviticus who inspired 1 Corinthians, just to throw that out there. At any rate, to even demonstrate this point to you that even Paul would agree with me, in verse 14 of this chapter, Paul uses the law, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, that, that's what we're talking about. Paul uses the law as a reason why we should not bite and, and devour one another, saying we should love thy neighbor as thyself, which where did, we've heard those words. We think about Jesus saying them. Where did Jesus get those words? Got them from his Old Testament. It says that these words are the fulfillment of the whole law. So we are not saying that the law is bad, okay? That's not, that's not what's going on here. So we don't want to be imbalanced in that respect. The law is not bad, the law is not wrong, and it's even still relevant for our moral instruction. But you also need to understand this. And this is the thing that the Pharisees didn't understand. This is what they didn't understand properly. 
No one is justified by the law. No one. No one is justified by the law. Why? In order to be justified by the law, you would need to, in perfect lockstep, obey it completely. Not just on the outside. Remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, not just the act of adultery, that's sin. It's the very looking at her with lust that is sin. It's, it's the desire that you had. That's where the sin began. And, and so that's what the Pharisees are all about. They could keep the cup clean on the outside. I mean, I mean you hand me a cup that is sparkling on the outside, but there's molded coffee grounds at the bottom. I'm not going to drink from that cup. Jesus says it's not enough just to keep the cup clean on the outside. You've got to wash it inside as well, right? And, and so it's not just obeying the law externally. It's not just showing up on Sunday morning and, 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 and looking good in front of everyone else. What's going on in your heart? What's going on in, in your heart? And so if you're going to be justified by the law, that means you cannot have even had the slightest inclination to maybe consider thinking about sinning. That means from the moment of your conception, you would have had to lived a 100% perfect life all of your days. Who wants to stand up and say that they can do that? Amen to that, brother. And so because of the fact that in order to be justified by the law, you would need to have obeyed it completely and no one can since from the moment of our conception we have a sin nature, no one's going to be justified by the law. If God's going to save a sinner, it won't be because they fulfilled the law. So the beautiful point that Paul is trying to make to these foolish Galatians who are trying to bring people back under the law of circumcision is that Christians are not justified by the law, but by their faith. We are justified, we are set free, we are redeemed, we are saved, we are reconciled, having peace with God, all by means of our faith. By the way, faith alone. So Paul says to the Christian who is walking by the Spirit, he's saying, listen, when you stumble or fall, when your flesh keeps you from doing that which you want to do in that moment of passion, Paul's saying, brother, sister, If you're truly walking by the Spirit as you say you are, remember we've already established that this is a gift of God's grace in and of itself. It means you're not under the law, which means you are not justified by perfect obedience. You are justified by your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So though you stumble, so you you fall, so so you sin, so you even sin grievously, Paul's saying, brothers, take some comfort in the fact You're not justified by walking perfectly. You're justified by the one whom you're following. This is a glorious thing. It's a glorious thing, and my prayer is that this truth would be made known to you by the Spirit of God. And and if you are a Christian and and you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, I, I just want you to remember how blessed you are. That though your life may have been a struggle and you haven't perfectly done everything you've wanted to do and you have not accomplished all that you've sought to accomplish, though you've not been perfectly obedient to Christ even after all these years, just remember and please remember, my dear brother and sister, if you're led by the Spirit, which means that the Spirit indwells you, it means that the Spirit has saved you and you're not justified. That is seen as righteous in God's sight based upon your performance based upon your works, based upon your accomplishments, or even the exercises of your will. You are justified by your God-given faith in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who died for sinners. Now rest in that. Rest in that. Just let that comfort you. Just, Just be so encouraged by that. Now there would be some who would hear those words and they would say, Logan, if you preach a message like that, If you preach a gospel like that, you're just going to encourage people to sin. You're going to have people sitting in that congregation who say, yep, faith alone, faith alone. I'm not under the law. I'm led by the Spirit. I'm under grace, not under the law. It doesn't matter what I do. Go keep on sinning. Go keep, uh, uh, you know, being obedient to the flesh. 
And you're right. If I, there are certain people who if I preach the same sermon to, wouldn't change them a bit. They would just keep on in their sin. If they're unconverted. If they're unconverted. But if they are converted, if you are a true Christian, you would, you would recognize the magnificent, glorious wonder of God's love and you would say, I want to follow him more than I want to be happy. I want to follow him more than I want to experience pleasure. I want to follow him more than, than anything. And, and so in light of that, I said that there is another meaning to this verse as well. You see, the great distinction in regards to the law between God's elect people in the new covenant versus the old covenant is that under the new covenant, the law is written upon hearts. You see, although God's people under the old covenant were still truly justified by their faith, remember, since no one is justified by the law, even people living in the Old Testament were not justified by the law but by their faith, there is a sense in which we have something that they did not. That is the law being written upon one's heart. Under the Old Covenant, you had the law written on external tablets of stone or written on scrolls that were rolled up and kept in the synagogue. And your striving to conform to that law was, in a sense, you trying to change yourself by your external actions. Under the New Covenant, the law is now written upon your heart. Therefore, it's not you trying to change from the outside in, but rather your external actions are being shaped by the internal reality of spiritual life as a result of the ongoing work of God inside of you. For the law is is written upon your heart. To show this, let's take a look at these next few verses. So beginning in verse 19, we read this. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What we have here is called a vice list. Essentially just a list of various vices, right? Various sins. And, and Paul teaches that those who make an ongoing practice of these things, since it is obvious that they do not have grace and are not being led by the Spirit, he's saying if, if these things characterize your lifestyle, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so that's like a sobering thing. Because... I don't think that there's anyone in this room who can cross off more than three or four or five of these things that they have not been guilty of at one point or another, or even recently have been guilty of. And, and so it's a sobering thing. But the point is, and, and we should throw this in, the other time, another time we find a viceless in scriptures, First Corinthians chapter 6, And Paul lists these various sins, and he says, And such were some of you, such were some of you, which you have been washed, which you have been renewed by your faith in Christ Jesus. And so that's that's a promise we must always hold on to. So this is not an exhaustive list. The point is that the works of the flesh are those things which are sinful. But notice something that I think is truly wonderful. In verse 19... Paul describes, when he's going through the vice list, right, Paul says that these things are works, that they are works of the flesh. Well, notice the contrast in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So if those Last few verses were a vice list. You could call this a virtue list. Again, not every conceivable good or righteous thing is listed here. The point is that um, these things are produced not by the flesh, by the Spirit. 
And so, so look at this, and, and I hope, hope you grasp this. When we were talking about the sins, when we were talking about the vices, these things were categorized by the Apostle Paul as works of the flesh. But here, these, these virtues are described as fruit, the Spirit. Now, there's a contrast there. There, there is a contrast there. There is a, a difference. Paul's trying to make a point with that. And I think this is just so wonderful. So, so what is this point? What's, what's the difference? Why is there this contrast? Why is one work and the other fruit? You see, the solution to that question is this. Works are something that we do that proceed from our own strength, that proceed from our own Flesh, therefore, sins are works of our flesh. That is not the same with these virtues. It's not the same with these virtues. For they are called fruit. And in this sense, fruit is something that is produced within us, not from our own flesh, but from another source, the Holy Spirit of God. For, it is no, for no longer is the law written merely on external tablets of stone or scrolls in the synagogue, but dear New Covenant Christian, the law of God is written upon your heart. Written upon your heart. God is changing you, and He is changing you from the inside out. And just as your faith and your salvation are His gifts, so too can the good that we do in our lives rightly be attributed to His sovereign and gracious working within you. Blessed and wonderful God. He knows that we cannot do what we've been called to do. Remember at the beginning of the sermon, we illustrated that the Christian is a person who is engaged in a battle. You're engaged in spiritual warfare, spiritual conflict, God recognizes that you know, flesh and blood can't fight that battle. You can't fight that battle in your own strength. Your flesh is too strong, too, too strong of an enemy. It really is. So you cannot do it on your own. You're, you're completely helpless. You cannot do it in your own strength and power. Well, God recognizes that. And remember, he actually, factually loves his elect people. He loves you, Christian. He, 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 like that's a real thing. And so he not only gives us faith, but he continues all the days of our lives to provide us the grace and the strength to do that which he has called us to do. And when our earthly race is over and our lives come to a close, we can look back upon all the good fruit that has been brought forth through us and we can say, truly, like I did none of this. Like that I don't deserve the credit, that I don't deserve honor, I don't deserve glory, but solely Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. And not only glory to him alone, but all glory to him alone. Blessed and praised be the name Yahweh forevermore. Verse 24, read this. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So just to bring you this last word of exhortation. In verse 25, Paul says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And so before we close, we just got to make this point. Paul is saying is this, if all of this doctrine, if all of this theology, all of this information, all of this spiritual truth, if all that applies to you, if it's true of your life, true of your heart, then live like it is. I know that sounds contradictory with what I just said. Just, you know, if, if it's all of God and 
but yet we are also somehow commanded to participate in this. But that's just how your sanctification is. Your, your salvation, your, your um, justification, these things, that, that is a monergistic work. Mono meaning one. There is one party who is working to accomplish these things. That party is God. But your sanctification is not monergistic. It is synergistic in the sense that there are two parties that are working on this thing. So the two parties then are God and you, God and, and myself. So God the Holy Spirit will lead you and, and he will guide you and he will illuminate to you the scriptures and he will convict you and he will, when you err, and he will comfort you and all these different things. So your responsibility as the Holy Spirit leads you in these different areas is to keep up with him, to keep in step with the Spirit. That means when he presses something upon your heart, when he, when he gives you wisdom, when he makes clear to you the meaning of Scripture, or even when he convicts you of your sin, follow him. Follow him. Listen to what he is saying and, and obey him. And beloved, that is the true meaning of what it is to walk in the Spirit. And so you ask, you know, what are some practical things that we can do to listen to the Spirit, to follow the Spirit? Well, the two answers that we always give, read your Bible and pray. Read your Bible and pray. You ask, well, how does God speak to me? He speaks to you through His Word. He speaks to you through His Word. And in prayer, we submit ourselves to God, and He changes us, and He changes us. So read your Bible and pray. Those are, and, and, of course, we would add um, being in, in, a, in a local fellowship, being in a local church service, listening to preaching, um, being baptized if you have not yet, or watching baptisms, partaking of the Lord's Supper, these these. these means of grace, these ordinance that God gives to his people because he loves them. Like, be involved in that. Your Bible, prayer life, the church. So let him lead and guide you. Let him take control of all of your actions so that it can be truly said that the good works you do are fruit that he has bore. Remember this, that though the battle is raging and the fire is burning and sometimes you lose hope, remember that the war will be won. The war will be won because the victory was accomplished in full when Christ paid for your sins on the cross. And he ever lives to make intercession for all of his elect people to this very day. Let's praise him. Close with me in a word of prayer. Oh, Father God, we are just so thankful for another Lord's Day. We are just so thankful for another opportunity to uh, gather for the purpose of, of worshiping you, dear Lord, in spirit and truth. Father, it's my sincere prayer that your name was honored, that your name was hallowed, that your name was glorified as we worship together this night. Dear Lord, I just pray that the truth of your word was made known. I pray that the Holy Spirit would take these truths and apply it to the hearts of my listeners, dear God. I pray that you would continue to empower us, continue to give us encouragement and, and, and leadership and direction as we go on with our lives this week, that we would have a, a real sense of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and a real desire to not only recognize that and believe that, but to follow him, dear God. It's Christ's name we pray. Amen.